0: Hello and welcome back to La Manito Muerta, episode number two. I might as well call it a mini episode as I suddenly realize that uh, I have not given you any social and political background of uh, that period in Chile. But before that, a word about the situation in my current country. Today, we are in the midst of an enormous crisis in Israel, a real struggle due to the legal reform the government is trying to pass, or, as some of us refer to it, an attempt to eliminate the democracy altogether. Yes, we're witnessing a legislative effort to weaken and cancel the independence of the Supreme Court and its ability to supervise the government. This is crucial for the democracy in Israel since we have no constitution. This attempt is led by the most ultra-right-wing government that has ever been formed here, when some of its members are fanatic religious that believe in going back to biblical laws and also believe in Jewish superiority. I know, it's hard to believe, right? The polarization within the Israeli society now between those who are in favor of the proposed legal reform and those who oppose it is unbearable. It is violent and it's at a peak level. So much that it seems that we are almost on the verge of civil war, with weekly demonstrations against the government policy that are going on now for several months. The majority of the demonstrators are secular liberal Jews, worried about their lifestyle being threatened. They also believe that the whole reform is just a cynical move by Prime Minister Netanyahu to avoid... The ongoing trial on numerous corruption charges he is accused of. Meanwhile most of Arab and other non-Jew citizens largely do not participate in the demonstrations as they feel outsiders when their issues and civic concerns are not welcome in the public debate in the market of opinions. The average Israeli is concerned with the damage to the democracy within Israel, but does not care about the lack of democracy in the occupied territories, where people are subject to wide limitations of their basic rights. Israel will never be a true democracy as long as the occupation goes on, as long as peace with the Palestinians is not negotiated and achieved. And sadly, most of the public in Israel doesn't see, or perhaps refuses to see, the link between these issues. This grave polarization we are currently experiencing is somewhat reminiscent of the atmosphere of division in Chile in the 1970s, even though there are two very different cases. So, before we dive into the political background, In Chile and the personal stories of my family, I want to tie them to the spirit of the times both locally and also in the global context. In Chile, Salvador Allende was elected president in 1970. He was a doctor, a socialist from an upper class family. This was actually his fourth attempt for the presidency. It is said. That after the third failure, he said, half jokingly, half bitterly, when I die, please write on my grave. Here it is buried the man who failed three times to be elected president. So, in his fourth attempt, he was lucky, or unlucky, history will decide, and indeed in 1970 he succeeded and was elected the first ever socialist president in the continent of South America to be democratically elected. Upon his nomination, he immediately seeks to promote significant social reforms in the fields of education, health, agriculture, industry, and many more. Chile in those days was a very classist society. There is a minority of people holding to power, to money, and the vast majority is living in poverty or very humble conditions, there is almost no social mobility. Meaning, if you were born poor, you have almost no chance of breaking through that glass ceiling. Every middle-class family, they have servants at home, servants who live indoors with the families and have almost no social benefits. Note that I deliberately said servants in the plural manner. This is very evident in architecture, for example, when houses and offices are planned and designed in such a way that the servant rooms are minimal, very small, connected usually to the kitchen, and have no heating even when all other parts of the house are heated with a central system. The most luxurious houses and apartment buildings, if you saw the servant dorms, you'd think it is the kitchen's pantry. So, in 1970, Allende wants to change all that, to create a more egalitarian society. And the way to reach this goal is, for example, through making free education accessible to all levels of the people, up to university level or to promote an agricultural reform in order to give land to farmers. Because in fact, many of the land workers are serfs, and the land is owned by rich people only. In order to leverage all these reforms, he needs a lot of money. So the very first step that he takes is to nationalize heavy industries that were owned by foreign companies, from Europe and especially from the United States. Obviously, this step is very worrying and angering to the economic companies and their countries of origin. Politically, there is even a greater unrest. Remember that this is the Cold War era of the 50s, 60s and 70s, a period of clash between the two ideological blocs that lead the world. The United States, in one hand, with its capitalist approach, and, on the other hand, the communist Soviet Union. And these two ideological concepts cannot live side by side. The two superpowers are constantly busy maintaining ties with the partner countries, and, if any of those try to distance themselves from the ideological line, from this bear hug, then it immediately leads to an intervention by the superpower the united states in particular treats the continents of central and south america as its own backyard both politically and economically and whenever a country signals a rapprochement with the socialist side the united states immediately responds in a predatory manner whether through economic and diplomatic pressure or by military force crude foot and violence in order to overthrow regimes even when democratically elected, as in Chile, in order to crown new leaders, puppet leaders, on its behalf. All of this is, of course, done in the name of democratic values, the free world, and many beautiful phrases like that. And yes, I am not ignoring, you can find and recall similar cases from the Soviet Union, for example, with the invasion of Czechoslovakia. But, since I am here as the Chilean boy, whose whole life changed beyond recognition with the military coup, then I will focus on the bear hug of the United States in Latin America. In this context, I also want to mention La Escuela de las Americas, In English, the School of the Americas. It sounds very innocent, right? But it is actually a military institution established by the American Intelligence Agency, the CIA, in 1946 on Panamanian soil with the purpose of training soldiers of Central and South American countries in intelligence, warfare, and interrogation techniques. Over the years, More than 83,000 soldiers have been trained in this school, and it is actually a preparatory program for intervention in countries with gross violation of human rights, teaching techniques of monitoring, detention, interrogations, torture, and murder of dissidents, nosy journalists, students, and academics. The list of countries whose militaries are trained at this institution includes Argentina, Paraguay, Nicaragua, Peru, Bolivia, El Salvador, Mexico, Chile, Panama, Honduras, and I could go on and on and on. Allende comes to power in 1970 and the United States is immediately concerned. It fears that Chile is about to become a kind of second Cuba. Now, it is true that Salvador Allende ideologically was very close to Cuba's socialist communist outlook. And one can understand the fear of the United States if one takes into account the Bay of Pigs crisis a few years earlier, with the Soviet Union's intention to place missiles, ballistic missiles, on Cuban soil, only 90 kilometers from Miami. However, in Chile, we make a distinction between democratic rule and the revolution led by Fidel Castro in Cuba. Ideologically, they both have similar goals, but the path is different. What do I mean by that? Cuba believes in the way of continuing the revolution by force and expanding it to other countries in the region in order to accomplish this as quickly as possible. Meaning... We know what is good for you, the people, and democratic values are less important. Castro does not bother to put his ideology to the test of voting at the ballot box. While in Chile, Allende adheres to democratic values, he wants the consent of the people, even if that means slowing down the pace and prolonging the process. We are also used to think of Latin American countries as a bunch of banana republics, where every Monday and Thursday there is some kind of military coup. This is obviously a false stigma, as many of these military coups are planned, funded, and arranged by the CIA. Moreover, in Chile, a country that exists for over 150 years and had a long democratic tradition throughout its history, except under President Ivaniez in the 1940s, and other periods when there were great political tensions and persecutions. But, by and large, it is a country that, until 1973, had its own democratic spirit. Political identity was important and central. People went to vote, took the streets to protest and demonstrate, Young people went to youth movements according to their political identification and it was a pride to be politically identified, whether it was from the right or the left side of the political map. I remember that there was a general contempt for those who showed political indifference, for the bourgeois who only wanted to get rich and live a comfortable life. That is why The military coup in 1973 catches all the people by surprise, really unprepared. The citizens do not believe that the army roams the streets of Santiago shooting dissidents, throwing cadavers into the river. Men with a mane of long hair receive a free haircut as a gift from the soldiers. Women who wear pants are sent back home to change into skirts. Swiftly, the understanding penetrates that you cannot express political views freely, that you have to know who is listening over your shoulder. And in fact, a very dark period begins. Even within the army and the police, there is an iron fist oppression of the few officers and soldiers who opposed the idea of Of the military coup and the erosion of basic civil rights. It is a state of chaos that literally, from one day to the next, a country goes from a norm of huge democratic tradition to a reality of loss of basic rights, such as freedom of expression, freedom of movement, the right of assembly, the right to earn a living into a situation of a murderous dictatorship in which people are murdered and made disappear. Anyone who has lived under a democratic regime all of his life will find it difficult to understand and imagine such a situation. For example, the secret police and the army are setting up torture houses right in the middle of the cities, in the midst of popular neighborhoods. In the dead of night, neighbors can hear trucks unloading detainees, and then they can hear their screams while being tortured. This is done on purpose. There is no attempt to hide these facilities in remote areas. On the contrary, the goal is to impose an atmosphere of terror and fear, with the understanding that fear is paralyzing. After all, no one wants such things to happen to their loved ones. Psychologically, there is a mechanism of self defense employed here. Everyone wants to believe that there is some kind of system of world justice. Call it God, or karma, or whatever you want, but we all want to believe that tragedies and disasters don't just happen for no reason. If people are murdered, disappeared, tortured, then they probably did something wrong. They probably deserve it, right? Because if not, the meaning is very frightening and disturbing. It can also happen to me. One of my most painful memories as a child is the turning away of neighbors, relatives, friends at school, shop owners in the neighborhood that suddenly did not allow us to enter into their shops or even walk by on the sidewalk. We felt marked. At a young age, you should not lose the basic trust in human beings. You should not question the axiom that man is basically good. Of course, there was a large envelope of friends and family and community members who did support us, even at the cost of self-risk. But the general atmosphere on the streets was, we must distance ourselves as much as possible from members of the previous regime. Because the very contact with them, even if completely random, is considered dangerous. Another point worth dwelling on it is the school of economics called the Chicago Boys led by Milton Friedman. It is a kind of academic right-wing thinking tank that believes in pure capitalism of the strong surviving and of reducing government involvement to a minimum, even when it comes to essential social services, such as health and education. And they use Chile, after the military coup, as their guinea pig to test their economic theory in practice. And unfortunately... We can see the consequences of this to this day, even 50 years later, when there are entire systems that were privatized, such as the pensions and the health services. If you live in the United States, take a look at the privatization that uh, the prison system has undergone. Instead of worrying about the prisoner's welfare and chances of rehabilitation, and return to being a contributing and useful citizen. All that matters instead, and it is sacred, it is the profit line. The prisoner actually becomes a product, and everything is done to prolong his sentence and ensure his return to prison. There is no interest in rehabilitation, and there is an across-the-board cut of any expenditures that do not bring profit whether it is programs for the prisoners' welfare, the quality of the food, the conditions of the cells, etc., etc. This is not only about physical well-being in terms of prison conditions, but also psychologically. I remember that Israel, a few years back, also considered privatizing the prisons, especially at a time when asylum seekers from Africa were imprisoned for long and indefinite prison terms. Democracy, anyone? Fortunately, this initiative did not succeed. It was blocked by the Supreme Court. Yes, the very same one that now the government is trying to cut its wings. Now there is talk about privatizing the post office. The concern is what kind of service the affluent residents of North Tel Aviv, for example, will receive, who can pay a high rate for the mail and packages they order online, compared to the services that residents of Kiryachmona and Dimona will receive. Those will be unprofitable branches, and they probably will be shut down, and important documents and bills simply will not arrive. Now, think of Chile, where this school of thought, the Chicago Boys, turns an entire country into an economic testing ground. That is why the whole world looked at Chile, not such a key central country until then, in order to see what would happen to this dictatorial economic experiment. By the way, the voice you hear in the musical intro of the podcast is the voice of President Salvador Allende from his last speech just before his death as the presidential palace, La Casa de Moneda, was being bombarded. We will talk about this famous speech at length in a chapter devoted entirely to that subject. I told you a little bit about the political background of that time. Let's continue a little bit with the personal background. My parents met at the university in the 1960s, and according to what I told you about pride in political identification, they were both strongly involved in the political life in the campus. My mother went to veterinary school, and my father to engineering. They met at the assemblies of the communist cell, each representing its own faculty. They were imbued with ideals. They wanted to change society. Later, when I was already a teenager, I would laugh at their generation, who marched in demonstrations and protest for equality and opportunities for all and social benefits. And in the evenings, they returned home to dinner and the proposed bed prepared by the maids. I know, wicked joke. After Salvador Allende was elected president, my dad entered politics strongly and was appointed deputy minister of industries. But he quickly grew tired of the intrigue and the need for compromises in the political life and asked the president to give him a professional appointment. And thus, he was appointed director of the copper mines in the north. We moved from the large modern city 1,200 kilometers north to a remote periphery in the most arid desert in the world, the Atacama Desert, to a town called Chukikamata. The transition was sharp in every way, but there was a very positive atmosphere of a desire for change, of an ideological mission. Many professionals all came committed for the same goal. We lived there less than three years. I was a four-year-old boy when we arrived, but the spirit of the times is still ingrained in me to this day, and as an adult, I was privileged to return there for an encounter that was bordering on the magical surreal. In the next chapter, we'll talk about how the military coup caught us there by surprise in Northern Chile, and also about under what circumstances paper can be delicious. Hmm. So, thank you for listening, and we'll meet again in episode number 3.